If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Welcome to another episode of Ant Security for All. As a reminder, we have two outlets of listeners out there, um, our LinkedIn Live listeners. If you're here today, um, welcome to the show. And we have our Voice America listeners that tune in every Friday. Um, and if you want to check out any of our past episodes, you can find us on any place that you listen to your favorite podcast. Just look for Ant Security for All. And you can catch any of our past speakers, and we would love for you guys to um, go check that out. Thank you again for all of our loyal listeners, and welcome to another episode. Um, I hope everyone's January is starting out great. Uh, mine has been a little crazy. We have uh, are already rocking and rolling with our events. For any of you guys out there that don't know, I'm also the CEO of FutureCon Events, we host cybersecurity conferences all over North America, and we just finished up last week our first show, and we were out in Dallas, Texas, and the Texans, actually, they know how to do it pretty well out there. We were at the House of Blues, and we had a ton of fun out there. It was a packed house. We wrapped up the event with some live music at the House of Blues, and it was a great kickoff for all of our events for 2023. Tomorrow, we're heading out to uh, Los Angeles, and we have an event this week on Thursday, and Sajid, the CISO from 7-Eleven, is going to be our keynote speaker. So if anyone's tuning in today, if you want to check us out in Los Angeles, um, we would love to have you guys drop by. Just give me a ping and love to see you all out there. Um, Again, our my my keynote, not my keynote speaker, but one of our keynote speakers that we had out in Atlanta, which we had another great event that wrapped up 2022, was um, Ken Foster. He's the VP of IT Governance, Risk, and Compliance from Fleet Corps. He is going to be my guest today, and I'm excited to have him here. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, Kim. Good to see you again. Yeah, appreciate, appreciate you having me on. Always, uh, always look forward to having a conversation with you. Yeah, how's it going? How's everything? How's your year starting off? You know, it's uh, it's it's been hectic so far. You know, it's um, as you as you wind down the previous year and then kicking off anything that uh, in the new year that doesn't seem to be uh, doesn't seem to be uh, much spare time for anything else. And uh, it's uh, it's it's definitely been an exciting kick off to the new year so far. So. Well, did you have any time to rest during the holidays? I took a day here, a day there, you know, a little just a, uh, you know, kept it low key this year, stuck around the house, you know, got to watch my, uh, got to watch the dogs go out and, uh, you know, win a championship. So that was, uh, that was kind of part of, part of my new uh, end of the year there. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. That. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I had, yeah, I actually had a friend of mine. I think it went viral. He's a friend of mine that lives down in Cabo that was out in Los Angeles watching that game. And he saw Nick Saban and he called him down and Nick Saban came down from the stand 
to talk to my friend. And he goes, can you give me a go dogs? And he goes, I'm not going to do that. And he walked away <laughs> and went back up to the stands. But yeah. I, missed, I missed that. I'll see if I can find that one. So, I'll send yeah. it to you. It's really funny. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, so that was fun. And now are you a NFL? I, uh, I try to I try to watch it every now and then, but there's there's nothing really going on in the uh, in the current playoff situation that I'm all that excited about. <laughs> okay, well I am I'm 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 from Missouri and I'm a big Chiefs fan, but a little nervous for the Chiefs, the, those Bengals. Those Bengals. I was gonna say yeah, it looks like it's gonna be a repeat of last year, so it'll it should be a good uh, should be a good game. So well, so when when you were um. When you were in Atlanta, which was an amazing event. So it was kind of nice ending with Atlanta and then um, kicking it back up. Do you know, do you happen to know Pat uh, Benet? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, Pat Benet was our keynote speaker out in Dallas. And it was so nice to end with such a strong speaker like you and a great panel and then wrapping it up. We did, we did something a little different in Dallas. We did, had two authors, Philip Wiley and George Finney, they were there with their books, and um, we had fun. But it was nice to end the year on a high note and start it off with a high note. So yeah. when when you were out, and well, before we even jump into that, because I know you made a big move about a year ago, because you used to be with, was it Global Payments? Global I was with Fiserv. Yeah, Fi- yeah I, I always feel yeah. like they're like the same. I feel like everyone yeah. in Atlanta is either the, with one or the yeah. other. It's the other kin in Atlanta that moved to uh, that moved to Global Payments. The, the uh-huh. that used to work that used to work with me over at Fiserv. He went to Global Payments. I went to uh, I went to Fleet Corps, right? And uh, sometimes that did confuse people when I, you know, I told everybody when he worked with the other guy named Ken worked for me. I was like, uh, that was my move. I said that way he got invited to meetings and then would go. I think this was supposed to be for you, and I was like, ah, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> so did he take your job at no oh no no because no, he, he went to global payments okay. yeah, he does he he's he's more of a data guy but uh you know as, as we talk about things and things i like to talk about in the, in the cybersecurity world right when you were looking at risk quantification and how we measure our programs i think uh bringing on somebody who understands how to help build do the data side of that and the number crunching and build out uh help you build out the metrics and get them into the format you want them to be. Uh, that's uh, I think is security folks are brilliant people and they do a great job, but you know, when you need a specialist, you go out and find a specialist. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, um, what, and I have a quick uh, comment, Robert Yellum is out there and, and I guess I should make some clarification. We're on LinkedIn live, but this episode records Friday. I, I was trying to keep it, I messed that up when I started talking about our Los Angeles event. So I don't want to confuse our listeners on Friday. If you all are tuning in, I want to let you know that we pre-recorded this the Tuesday before um, when you're listening to it now. So our Los Angeles event will be over, but Robert Yellum is out there and he said, I'd like to get info on the Los Angeles event. Um, Hey, you should come out, Robert. All you have to do is go to FutureCon events and I'll just uh, give you a code. Just use uh, LinkedIn. Um, We have a bunch of Northrop uh, Gumman people already uh, attending. So just reach out to me, DM me, and I'll make sure you get a ticket. But tell us a little bit, Ken, um, about Fleet Corps, because I don't really know a lot What do, about Fleet Corps. What do they do? 
You know, we're fintech uh, that kind of specializes in the um, the fuel card transaction um, space. Um, that's about you know about probably about fifty percent, maybe a little bit more of our business. Um, we also do a lot of uh, cross border payments, uh, so we've got a pretty pretty good healthy stake in the cross border payments area. Um, and then probably a couple of things that people don't really know about Fleet Corps is that we do quite a bit of work. In it. We've got some um, travel uh, lodging type business that's around uh, kind of corporate fleet type. It's also tied into the kind of the fleet side of things, fleet management side. But we kind of provide some systems for people to be able to book travel and things for their, their drivers or such when they're out. And then we, uh, we own the toll system in Brazil. Uh, which is, uh, you know, you think toll system, but the truth is it's a contactless payment system that allows people to, uh, down down in Brazil, they even have special lines at fast food restaurants so you can pull up and buy your dinner with your toll device on your car. So it's kind of an interesting, interesting business to be in. Uh, you know, basically, I think uh, what we like to say is, is we're, we want to be all things all payments, all things payments outside payroll to the small and medium sized business. So that's kind of where our focus in. So that's our where we fit in the financial market. Uh, you know, we're we're global. We're operating in about 112 to 115 countries. Uh, we have presence in about uh, uh, 10 or 12 now. I think it, we we uh, we we do acquire quite a bit of companies. So it's a little hard to keep up with that. <laughs> sometimes on where we where new offices are and things like that but uh you know most of our our major operations are for sure in north america uh, emea and uh, brazil or where our big operations are so um tell it and then how did you i know you i was yeah okay so tell us about that because i i know that's something you and i have in common yeah. what did you do um, in the Navy, and then how'd you transition into being the VP of IT governance at Fleet Corps? So, you know, my journey is probably, well, I, I will say that my journey has been, uh, I think it was somewhat typical for some of us back when we first kind of got started in cyber in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, right? I, uh, I spent 10 years in the Navy. I worked on missile radar systems as a fire, what was called a fire controlman. Um, you know, so my exposure was, uh, you know, a lot of electronic engineering, but we also had mainframes basically that ran, you know, you know Unix based mainframes that ran those, those radar systems. Um, you know, and, uh, back in the early nineties when I was working on those radar systems and doing all that, I, uh, you know, the, the internet in its infancy and, uh, kind of computer gaming actually in its infancy. And I took an interest in building computer systems, you know, personal computers and group of guys that I worked with in the Navy. We all decided to teach ourselves how to build servers and then how to build networks and how to build PCs. And we, uh, you know, took it upon ourselves with getting permission from the, the command and said, Hey, we want to, we want to build a network because the ship didn't have a traditional uh, computer network is what we think of it today. So we built a we built a, a network and we uh, built a server and we built an email server and file server and kind of started doing all that so we could be a little more efficient in our jobs from 
you know, in the end of a, of a ship. And then we, uh, we figured that out and then we're like, Oh, well, that's pretty cool. And then we, we brought our own personal PCs on board for when we had a little downtime while we were deployed out on the ocean and we'd build computers and play video games against each other. So some of the first, first person multiplayer games out there, which then taught it. We were teaching ourselves how to tune the network and tune the PCs to keep the performance going. And it just something, something that I had a great interest in and, and had an aptitude for, I guess. So, and as we were doing that, you know, in this back in those days, we didn't call it cybersecurity. We called it uh, information assurance. And, you know, the ship, the command had a, um, had a website and then, you know, pretty rudimentary stuff back then, but they also and the documents and stuff, and they needed somebody to make sure that we were protecting the the stuff that was on there as best we could. So, I became the uh, I became blessed as the ship's uh, the command's uh, information secure information assurance officer. Uh, no formal training in it. They're just like you. You seem to know what you're doing with this stuff, and. I was senior enough and been around a while that they uh, they they blessed me with the title, which got me interested in that. So you know, then that that led me to leaving the military and taking my first job in Atlanta, working for a you know a small company. I had a few locations around the U.S. and uh, started out kind of working in more on the engineering side of that, but then very quickly in about a year, I was running all of their. I ran IT for them after about a year. Uh, so, and that included everything, right? If it basically, if it plugged into the network, it belonged to me. And, uh, you know, I uh, security in its infancy back then, you know, we had firewalls and antivirus and uh, maybe a little bit of rudimentary encryption, but that, that really was kind of it, right? And, and that just evolved over time as I moved and my career evolved. I did some pen testing for a while, working for the government. I did some hardening for a while for the government, doing that kind of things. Did forensics and collections for the government in a different different point in my life. And uh, I did a lot of infrastructure, too. I ran infrastructure for companies and was, you know, uh, doing networking and SQL servers and building servers and stuff. Kind of kind of done it all, right, outside of pure development, Uh and like I've told everybody, I can, I, yes, I can sit down and write scripts and do that stuff, but you're probably not the guy I want to hire. You want to hire to do that. Cause I am definitely slow at it. Uh, but that just kind of led me down the road. And then I went back to work for the government in Afghanistan for a few years, uh, kind of in the intelligence community, doing some stuff around computer forensics and some application support and just kind of a, I ran the team over there, um, and did that for a couple of years, decided it was time to come back home and, um, you know, come back to Atlanta. And I, I, I took a role with a, a company in Atlanta. It was kind of a, I call it that, about the same number of people wise, about the same as what we are here, about 14,000 people. We had, uh, you know, we had about 500 locations in the U.S. We were U.S. based and I ran all of IT operations and engineering and, and became their CISO and within my first year of being there and really started trying to grow program, build the programs and do that. And after, after running both sides of the house for that size company, I realized that uh, 
I think for my health and stress level, and this is going to sound funny, but I think I was just going to focus on security and not worry about the infrastructure side of it. So that led me into the led me into more of a pure security role. And I took another CISO role, a small infrastructure service company, and was there for a short period of time and then wound up going over the first data to kind of run a governance and risk and uh, also head up their federal government security stuff that they did for federal government. And it, it, what I saw was a path that if you want to be well-versed and I think really guide what a company is trying to do and be strategic about it, you have to be thinking about it from a risk standpoint and thinking about how to govern the program. And I, I want to, I want to say it's more than just what most people would think is a pure, when I say governance, right. It's not, I'm not talking about, um, just assessments and audits and regulatory. I'm talking about truly governed programs. And when you think about it, that's when you're reporting up to the board and communicating up through the business. The board's job is to govern the company, right, from a financial standpoint. Our job is to govern the cybersecurity program and communicate the risk that we are having from cybersecurity and how that affects the financial part of the company. And if you're working from the risk angle and thinking about that, that helps you translate into true business conversation, which is risk, right? Having the conversation in business risk and having it in their, their language, not, not, uh, not the technical jargon that is good information. We absolutely have to have it, but you have to convert that some at some point into an actual bis, business risk and quantify and quantify that risk in revenue dollars, uh, and have that conversation. So that's what got me into the risk side of the house. So I've been doing been doing that now for coming up on oh coming up on five and a half, almost six years. So it's uh, your story so yeah, your your story's so amazing. So before you went in the Navy, um, did you go in as an officer or enlisted? No, I was an enlisted guy. Wow, uh, that's officer. Uh, that that's you know, officer. The, that's awesome. The you funny know. the funny story about that was is I actually joined the army first. I uh, I joined the army when I was sixteen, as uh, as on the delayed entry program, and uh, one day I, I have a lot of family that are veterans too, and and. Matter of fact, I think I have somebody who's been in every branch except the Coast Guard. And we were talking about it one day, and I had an uncle who was in the Army and an uncle in the Air Force at the same time. They go, hey, did the Army guarantee you what you were going to be doing in your contract uh, from the recruiter? And I was like, no. They told me, you know, we'll get you in, then you'll get signed a job coming out of coming out of basic. And uh, they're like, yeah, you, you probably want to, you don't want to do that in the Navy. I, so I went and talked to the Navy recruiter and he's like, yeah, we write down, we'll put the job you're going to be doing in a contract. So I actually backed out of my army commitment and went into the Navy because they could offer me the job that I wanted to be doing uh, in the, in the contract. So. Well, when you were in the Navy and you signed that contract, because when I went in the Navy, I went in at 18 I had no idea what I wanted to do. Definitely was not a college person. I did that later in life, but um, that just wasn't for me. So they didn't, at the time, um, I guess I wasn't a good tester. So when I, when I was testing, I'm not ashamed to say it because I'm here I am today, you know, and, and life's about 
ups and downs. And so um, I went in unassigned and I ended up working on the flight deck on an airbase in Hawaii. So that was all cool. There could be but, worse places to be yeah, working on. And flight, I loved okay. it because it was physical, you know, which is, it, it, you know, but I, I was the only female out there. But um, when you went in, so so what I was doing at the 18 in the military and what I'm doing now are two different things. It did kind of progress because I ended up going in the military police and then, you know, I was on a nuclear base and was on I was on the SWAT team. So I kind of feel like security, you know, I still was in those security aspect, but not like you. I wasn't on because back then, I mean, computers were they were. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was main. I mean, I, I, I have personally loaded a program in a computer radar uh, off of punch cards, off mm-hmm. of magnetic tape, and I've even done it with binary switches, flipping them to ones and zeros to program a radar. You know, uh, the military was uh, infamous, I guess, for not being on the latest and greatest technology, even, even in those days, right? So, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I've, I've still uh, technically never finished my college education because uh, <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't very it's it's one of those things. Uh, I, by the time I graduated high school, school, I was done with school. I didn't I wasn't really excited about going on to college. And I tried it at night for a little bit and decided that wasn't for me. Uh went into the military and apparently I did test fairly well for that because they tried to get me to be a nuclear engineer. And I, they get the first thing they did though was hand me a three hour math test, uh, basically a math and physics test. And I was like, I, I don't really want to do this. And, uh, they, they said, uh, you should do it. It's great for your career. And it's, you got three and a half hours to take this test. And I think I finished it. It took me about 45 minutes to fill it out and just basically, randomize my bubbles that I filled out and guess at questions. I didn't even try. And I, I actually only missed it by three points. doing that. <laughs> so I, I narrowly escaped being a nuclear engineer and they said, Hey, uh, what about being a fire controlman? And I was like, I don't want to put fires out. I'm not interested in a firefighter. And they said, no, you get to work on electronics and you get to blow stuff up because you get to shoot. You're the guy who shoots the missiles and the big guns. And I went, yeah, sign me up. Sounds like I'm in. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny because you're right. I mean, back in those days, it's it's the military is interesting and a lot of or the Navy specifically is in, back in those days was very interesting because, yes, you had your assigned job and, yes, you had things that you did, but you always had other things that the, they you were always multitasking, right? I spent I spent a lot of time um doing counter drug ops and interdiction. So boarding drug boats, doing things like that. Uh, I, I did, we were doing humanitarian stuff down in different places. Um, you know, so it was, you were never just totally locked into doing what you, you came into the military to do. And I do think it's a great experience and a great way to build, um, Build character, build, and what I liked about the schooling was, is the schooling taught you to, it was designed not to teach you to be an expert at, let's just say if it was software development, they wouldn't teaching you to be an expert at software development because the military forces a lot of education into in a very short period of time. And what they really focus on is the hands-on part and critical thinking. 
right? So it taught you how to troubleshoot. It taught you how to critically think. It taught you how to look at a problem, break that problem down, figure out where the problems are and, and dial in and then and work on that. Uh, so I think te- that is one of the things that, that I think is the best thing about the military education that I got was it taught me how to think critically and taught me to not to follow blindly what the, the book showed in a picture or a schematic or a drawing. And sometimes you had to step back and take a take a look at it. And I, I, I do think in a lot of ways, security is that way. Right. Um, and it goes kind of back to our, you know, kind of sooner or later, everything old is new again. Right. Is the fact that if we're always have done it this way and we're still we're still getting attacked, or we're still having issues or we're still seeing the same risk out there. What what do we need to change? Right. It's that old saying that we've always done it this way is the most dangerous words in the world, especially to cybersecurity and IT. So you need to be able to critically think and step back and look at things and go, what, what if we do things a different way or how do we mitigate this risk? How do we look at the program? How do we actually improve the process? Because a lot of times the technical part of what we do is fairly easy to solve. There's something out there that will technically do it. The harder part to change is the cultural, uh, the cultural aspect to it, or just the people set their ways and go. Well, we're gonna we're gonna change this process, and we're gonna we're gonna look at it a different way. We're gonna change the way you work a little bit, and initially you're gonna get pushback, and people are going to be upset with you because you're changing the way that they work, and you, to them that makes their job harder. What you've got to get really good at is having that relationship and the ability to explain to them that you're actually trying to make their job eventually easier. Once they get used to the new process, we get the new process, these new controls, these new security controls in place, these new policies, these new standards, just what it actually does is allow them to do their job with less risk and and eventually should allow them to move faster. But if you're not having those conversations up front and and getting some buy-in at the, the front end, you're always going to be fighting this uphill battle. And that's why having the relationships with the business and your external partners, which are, you know, typically your IT operation teams, your development teams, your infrastructure teams, and the business, you know, if you're uh, like us, we, we write a lot of software and we sell it to, you know, we have customers logging into that. I need to be building a relationship with the business to understand why we're doing what we're doing. And we're not doing it to make it more difficult for them to sell. We actually should be doing it in a way that allows them to use us as a, a feature, uh, as a benefit to using our product because we're doing our job well and we know what we're doing and we're protecting it and we're explaining it to them why we may be putting in MFA on a customer login, but the real realistically is if you look at the breach of what breach just happened last week, uh, PayPal, PayPal just got breached, right? Credential stuffing, credential stuffing, right? Is one of those things that it's pretty, it's basically, they've got a bunch of usernames and passwords, right? And they've got that they've gotten from other breaches, and they just hit a website and continue and hammer it with all these usernames and passwords till they get a, one that matches and logs them in. Well, if you just turn on MFA on PayPal, that defeats credential stuff for the most part, right? But that just, that's why the breach was fairly small. But you look at it like this, that goes there. There are people who are doing a couple of bad things. One, they're reusing passwords across multiple platforms. And two, 
they're not using MFA when MFA is available to them. And so there's a cultural user awareness problem that we have. And, and in general, that's a big part of our job is, is explaining, illuminating risk, explaining it to people in a way that they understanding and show them a way to reduce that risk overall and keep it moving forward. So how um, big of a breach is that going to affect other companies that are using PayPal? Because I honestly, uh, it was, I think it was about, that. I think it was about from what I saw, it was about 40,000 people, maybe a little under 40,000 people. And like I said, the problem is how many times have they reused that username and password on multiple applications across the board, right? Um, I mean, there was a breach, what, three years ago, where they basically, that one breach that had that massive password dump that basically said everybody who's ever used the internet more or less has had their their password exposed at the time because it was in a big rainbow table basically out there. So the hackers have these massive rainbow tables. So if you're, if you're not putting things in place to defeat simple things like credential stuffing, um, you know, or reusing passwords or using more complex passwords. I mean, ultimately we want to get rid of passwords and move to to some kind of passwordless environment that I'm a firm believer that that's what we need to do is get away from the passwords uh, and and use some kind of certificate, you know, uh, use a technology that's certificate based uh, and encrypt. They just got the right levels of encryption and is, and is at least um, resistant to being hacked. I, 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 I do take it with a grain of salt that, that a lot of people out there are saying that they're, you know, unhackable because of the way they're designed. But I don't think there's anything unhackable. There's just stuff that takes a lot longer than anything else. And I mean, as as the world moves and we know that quantum computing and everything is out there in the conversation, that once it gets to be a little bit more common and it's not just a nation state thing, you know, everything that we do today from an encryption and protection standpoint is no good anymore. Right. It's just it's going to be defeated. So we need to be thinking ahead on some of this stuff and figuring out ways to move into future proof ourselves a little bit. Um, But also, you know, some of this is just basic good cyber hygiene. Uh, Some of this is the basic stuff like uh, encryption, segmentation, um, you know, good access control, uh, least privilege. Right. So if we're doing for following things that we should have been doing for the last 20 years, you can mitigate a lot of this. And at least it gives you a little bit of time. I'm not going to say it's going to stop it, but it gives you a little bit of time to detect that somebody's in there doing something. Cause at a certain point they got to get loud. And once they get loud, that gives you the opportunity to stop them before they can exfiltrate anything. But, or make sure that what they exfiltrate is going to be really, really difficult for them to decrypt without some crazy horsepower. Well, when you say your topic, you know, sooner or later, everything's going to, everything old is new again. So I was thinking about a conversation I had with somebody in the financial industry and they were just, you know, they're someone, his partner was going to start a new business. And I was like, what do you really want to do that with our economy and the state it is? And he's like, well, you know, eventually rates are going to eventually going to have to come down and it's all, you know, we'll come out of this and it'll just be a repeat circle. It'll be cyclical. And do you feel like, are you equating 
you know, sooner or later, everything old is well, going to be new again. Cause that yeah, kind of like I was just talking about, right. Segmentation, least privileged access control process improvement. Well, guess what? That's been around for a long time. Right. But we've got a new buzz, you know, Forrester or Gartner or somebody was kind enough to put a new buzzword around it for us. It's now called zero trust. Right. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's, it's not new. Right. And a lot of the, that, that I think is the thing is, is a lot of the stuff we see, it's not necessarily new. Uh, and I'm not saying there are not new attacks, right? There are new a- ATPs and things that come out, new zero days that come out that are an undiscovered vulnerability. But in a lot of cases, you look at the how people are getting breached, how the attack path happened, what actually happened, that... Um, it comes down to some very common stuff. They're not patching. Most of the breaches, some, most, I, I forget the, it's probably been a couple of years ago. There was an article, one of the breach reports, one of the articles come out looking over at the breaches and said, you know, 93, 94% of all the breaches that had happened in the previous year were through an existing vulnerability that a patch was available for, right? People weren't patching. People are not keeping software up to date, right? They're getting they're getting through fairly easily. It's not like a lot of places are not getting some super advanced hack that's coming into them. They're actually getting they're actually getting compromised through known exploits that they're fixes for and just bad practices, right? Having having data exposed to the open internet that has weak passwords and no encryption on it so it's easy to go in and download it right and it's easy to share that data and and you you think back over time this is stuff that if you look at all security training through the last 20 plus years they're all telling you to protect the confidentiality the integrity right the they're they're all uh they're all going through these things you should be encrypting you should be limiting access to it you should be protecting it as well as you can. You should be keeping people away from it. So it's a, it's it's the same stuff over and over and over again. We're just really bad at implementing it um, because whatever new shiny toy that's hit the market, we run out and go, oh, well, this is the thing that's going to save us. When in reality, be better off spending money on doing some basic cyber hygiene stuff, getting a well-laid strategy out and understanding a risk. So I think the most exciting stuff I'm seeing coming down the pipe right now, and it's still talking about risk, but there, there are companies out there that this is what they do and, uh, you know, happy to have discussions offline with that. I'm not making this a commercial for anybody, but looking at risk in a way that allows you to truly prioritize, measure it in near real time, look at it, uh, get out of a point in time security or risk assessment, move into continuous monitoring, actually be able to group things, applications and systems together, assign a risk appetite to them and a risk score to them, understand what the controls are and how they're actually implemented, and then be able to take a real look at this and go, are we focusing our our limited resources, people and money? Are we focusing them on the right things? Or are we checking boxes 
to get past a bunch of compliance stuff that may or may not really move the needle. Now, granted, I, I'm a compliance. Compliance is part of my job, right? We have to do it because there is a level of risk for non-compliance, but that goes into the overall risk measurement of the whole thing. Compliance is a piece of that. Regulatory compliance is a piece of it, right? But all the other controls and all looking at it holistically and how, what everything is that we're doing to protect that, all goes into what the key risk indicators that you should be building and measuring for your unique in situation. And you should be able to look at this holistically and go, have I done enough reasonably to protect this data on this application and the data that it holds? But maybe I haven't done enough over here. So maybe I need to shift focus over here. Maybe, you know, and those are the things where you've got to, you've got to look at it holistically and have a, a real hard look and look at things very seriously and go, are we, are we doing everything we can uh, with the resources that we currently have to protect what we do? And before we run out and buy the newest, latest, shiny thing that's being pitched to us is going to fix our problems. There was um, an article, it was either in the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg. Um, Somebody told me about it. I didn't read it. So I'm just going, they brought it up to me because, you know, Anytime cybersecurity, you know, nobody really has anything to say about it until they read about it for those people that are not in the industry. And he was telling me that this article, I I really wanted to go find it before I chatted with you. But um, he said that like 50 percent of uh, people are starting to not um, pay ransom and that the United States is starting to um, put more compliance um what what compliance fees i mean are you seeing any of that happening and do you believe that that's true about 50 percent of people are not paying ransom yeah and i mean that number is going to be really hard to chase down because there are so many small incidents that happen Mm -hmm. you know uh, across I, i would say there's probably a small ransomware incident happening probably probably one of those statistics that's probably happening every hour uh, mm-hmm. somewhere, somewhere. And it may only be one or two laptops or something like that. And I'm sure that stuff's not getting reported. Right. Or, and I'm sure ransom's not getting paid on a lot of that stuff. Uh, the problem with that whole thing is, is it, it really is something that you have to be prepared for. You've had to have these discussions with the board and have to have a prepared plan because, I hate to do it, but it's a it's a depends answer, right? Because there are compliance issues out there about paying ransom, especially to certain countries, certain places, right? But in reality, was it big enough to make it publicly reportable, right? And do I need to report it to anybody? Because maybe the number of records is small enough that I don't have to report it outside, and maybe I decided the best thing for me to do because I can't recover this data and it's really impactful to the business is to pay a ransom, right? Or, um, you know, do I have a good BCP DR plan in place? Have I got immutable air gapped backups in a place that I can say, you know what, go ahead, do, you know, it's in, and the data is encrypted. You can have it. I'm just going to restore it. I've lost a little bit, but I'm not losing much now. Now we get into the whole blackmail side of it. Was the data not encrypted? Is it going to be detrimental to you if they actually release that data? And there's still no guarantee. These are criminals. There's no guarantee they're going to give you the keys and they're going to and they're going to give it back to you, right? They may have 
they may have destroyed your data in their encryption process because they didn't have a but they didn't have a good encryption program, right? I've, I've heard about that happening in a few places where they paid the ransom and they couldn't recover it anyway because the encryption tool that or encryption stuff that the bad guy had written it destroyed the data. There was no recovery. So again, I think it's something you you have to have a plan for. You have to talk openly about this and go. If this system had this happen to it, what are we going to do here? And you have to look on it on a, I think you have to look at it at a system by system basis. And this is where getting into this whole data, having a good data governance program, or at least an app, you know, at least a a way of knowing where your data is and what the, how important it is, what the controls are you have around it. And do we understand from our applications which ones house that data? How are we connected to it? What are the attack vectors on it? Or have we done everything we can to limit this? And like I said, if if I've got great encryption and they stole the data, I'm probably not going to be too concerned about it as long as I got a good backup because the, the data isn't going to hurt me, right? Because it's encrypted and they can't do a whole lot with it. But if it's unencrypted data and they can expose Maybe our I maybe the company's IP right that was out there, and now it's going to be. Uh, I'm going to see a new, better knockoff from another country. Well, I'm not going to say better, but I'm going to see a new, cheaper knockoff from another country within the next few months. Maybe that's something I'm concerned about. But the truth is, is once if it was for espionage, you know, that kind of corporate espionage, and they're wanting to build a knockoff anyway, paying a ransom, you're just giving them more money, and they're going to steal it anyway and make a copy of it. So. Yeah, uh, that is something that I I just I just don't have a good answer for it. You're going to have to you're you're going to have to have plans for each one of your systems and sensitive data on how you're going to approach that if if and when it comes, right? Um, the problem is is there's a bigger chance of when it comes than if it comes. Do you feel like um, the financial institutions are? Um, do you think they're doing a better job at as far as being safer. And one of the comparisons I want to, before you answer that is on the personal side, I bank with a very, very large bank on my business side. I bank with a business bank and um, uh, it's the business bank is amazing. The large bank I never hear from the business bank all the time. I hear from them, you know, all the time and which is good because I feel, I feel pretty protected. The other side, the huge bank. So is it just, the smaller ones have a lot more to lose than the larger banks. Well, I don't think it's a lot more to lose. I think what you're what you're seeing there is just volume of customers, right? It's hard mm-hmm. to be personable with, you know, when you get into these the top six banks in the country, as many customers as they got, they're not going to be able. Do I think they do a better job than the industry average? Um, they probably are on the higher side of the industry average because, and here's where regulatory, here's where compliance and regulatory kind of helps, right? Because it is a driver. They are so highly regulated. They have so many, uh, you know, the fintech world, financial services world, the banking world. It is so highly regulated. You have so many people looking over your shoulder to see whether you're doing it right or not. And, uh, I think the assessors are getting better uh, at bringing the right 
technical expertise. I'm starting to see that more with the with your outside big assessors. They're actually starting to bring in more and more people who actually understand cyber. I mean, 15 years ago, um, you brought in one of the big four to do an audit on you. They were doing one of your, you know, one of our basic audits that we go through of some kind, whether it's a SOC 2 or a SOX. They were young people out of fresh out of college who probably had went to school to be a financial auditor. So they're, uh, or in that realm. So understanding IT and cybersecurity was not in their, not in their wheelhouse. And a lot of times you could, you could baffle them with the jargon and the lingo a little bit and probably get away with some stuff. I think that day is, is going away a lot because I think people are realizing that uh, as you see more and more, um, more and more teeth getting put into fines and the issues like as you, as you see, uh, just read the changes that NYDFS is trying to do to their new, to, to the, to their, policy, right? If you're doing business in New York, they are digging way deeper than they've ever dug. They're looking at controls. They're looking at things much closer. So you're getting a level of scrutiny outside of probably outside of federal government space that is not many other industry gets that level of scrutiny from a cybersecurity standpoint. So my overall opinion is, is that most of the financial sector is is doing a pretty good job because they have 50 people looking over their shoulder to verify that they're doing a good job. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean they're doing a great job across everything. Uh, everybody who buys a new company, that is an area of risk for everybody when you start talking M&A, right? Um, did, how good was your due diligence when you're looking at this? How fast were you connecting them in? Did you bring in risk that you didn't know about because you didn't have time? Uh, because of the deal or something like that to get through the the right level of um, due diligence. Um, how far did you go down the rabbit hole? You know, did you just send them, send them a questionnaire? Uh, and the truth is, is that's what happens a lot. That questionnaire game we all play with third party risk and vendor risk is, which is, I won't say it's a complete waste of time, but it's something that it's a checkbox and it's something that's fairly easy to game the system with. Right. But uh, I think eventually we're going to move to a world where to close a deal, you're going to have to allow the purchasing company probably to put something on your network that gives them telemetry and tells them how that tells them and with great detail Think of it as an automated pen test or automated uh, risk review uh, allows them to see what's actually going on in the environment. And then that's going to adjust the, the probably going to adjust the, what the final closing price is. I think we're going to get there eventually because uh, it's, you've got to have, you've got to have a, a great understanding of what's coming into your environment. And, and it's hard to do that with manual questionnaires and just manual people you got to figure out a way to automate it. Well, I'm totally shifting gears because um, <laughs> um, I found this really interesting when you and a group of other people sat on a panel in Atlanta and one of the hot topics that kind of got everyone uh, riled up was Twitter, uh, not Twitter. Uh, Where'd I go? Why did I just go blank? Um, 
uh, you know. Um, was it TikTok? TikTok. Thank yeah. you. I was just yeah. TikTok, TikTok. So, and TikTok continues to explode, you know. I, I wouldn't have, I, it's not on my phone. And uh, I mean, now you actually, have celebrities that are, you know, I mean, it is crazy that it continues to just get bigger and bigger. So what are the vulnerabilities? Explain, especially for those that are listening to and the and security for all side that that tune into the show to learn more about cybersecurity. Tell us what those vulnerabilities are. So the biggest problem is, is you've basically given them rights to everything. You've given them access and the right to everything that's on your phone, right? If you go through and I, I, I will say the, probably the best place to go see this, just if you don't want to have to read their T's and C's yourself, is uh, it's funny, but uh, I think Joe Rogan actually read their T's and C's on his podcast. And it, it is way too much access for what, for what that platform is designed for, right? Um, you are basically giving them access to every bit of the data on your phone and, and, and you're agreeing to it by downloading and then setting up an account, right? It's had spyware in it before and it's, it is a Chinese owned company and it is going, it is sending data overseas, right? So you are sending a lot of personal data because we know everybody has a, uh, the privacy nightmare that your phone is with all the data that's on it, as well as the financial nightmare probably that your phone would be if everything on it has is accessed. It is, it's just not worth the risk to me. It's not worth the risk to have that on my phone for, uh, something I'm number one, I'm just never going to do it. I'm not, I'm not really, uh, I'm not really built for TikTok, Right. But, uh, do you have kids? I, well, my kids are older, but none of my kids actually, none of my kids actually have it on their phones. They don't. I mean, my youngest is 20. She's in college and she doesn't have, she doesn't, she doesn't do the TikTok thing either. Uh, but you know, I'm, I have been doing this for a while in the industry. So I think I've instilled a, a fair, a fair amount of paranoia in my family. <laughs> Maybe not the same level of paranoia that I have, but it's a, you right. know, I think I've got the appropriate level of paranoia instilled in them. So it's, uh, you know, and I think that's one thing why I do what we're doing right now. Right. I, the best thing that I can do is, is get out and talk to people and let them know where some of this risk comes from think about things, think about things that I think about, think about things that our peers think about. As I'm out talking with all of our peers in the cybersecurity world, and we're all having these, we're all having these problems and daily things, firefights that we're having to, to deal with. But, you know, as a community, we can learn from each other. We can get more people interested in it and get them into the industry because we need more people who are concerned about this stuff and who want to get out and do a good job and want to get it, want to have a good career path and want to do something that's interesting that's going to make the world a better place. And I think cybersecurity is a great place to do that. Well, and, you know, we're, we've got about three minutes until we close, but you are just like the nicest guy ever. You talk to everyone and I don't know how you do everything that you do and you still you know, you still have room for, we talk all the time about how do vendors get in front of CISOs. It seems like, you know, you always, 
you are always open to talking so, to people. I met you on LinkedIn, you know, yes. you're, you're, you're just, when you were with um, Data, the first company before. First uh, Data. Yes, first Data yeah, that I met you on LinkedIn yeah. and, you know, you take the time to talk to people. How do you do it all? So some of it's time management, uh, you know, a, a lot of it is, is, I don't sleep a whole lot, I guess, too. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I also, some of this is I'm reading stuff constantly. So I'm trying to pay attention to news feeds. I'm trying to pay attention to articles that are coming out. It, it's the world we live in. I got to keep up the speed, right? Like I just was watching the news feeds before we got on here. And I mean, I see that this last pass breach that happened is now they're now admitting it's much, much worse than what they first admitted. Right. So it's just trying to stay in front of what's coming at me because I have to be prepared to shift what we are doing as a company in case there's something new coming. Right. And I think talking with folks who are, in different verticals, in different industries who have different size companies. And, and even when we get into the um, the startup world, looking at what's coming out, going, it's always worth having the conversation. I think the biggest thing is, is like you've heard me say before, we owe it to each other to have a transparent conversation. You know, you may pitch me something that's interesting to me, but I may not be ready to look at it. I may not have time for it. I'm going to do that. And it takes me two seconds out of my day to tell somebody, great, uh, I, I think it'll look at it or it's not for me right now. Now, I will say that my LinkedIn has gotten to the point where it is a little difficult for me to keep up with everybody who messages me every day wanting me to look at their product. And I'm also not a fan of the I'm connecting with you and then I, I would like to have a 15 minute meeting with yeah. you right after this to tell me that that's not the way to do it. You know, send me over some information. Let me look at it. And if I'm interested in it, I'll get back to you. Uh, you know, I'm more apt to connect with folks who are practitioners who are looking for some advice, mentorship, or just wanting to know what they can do. I'm, I will answer those almost always. Um, well, that is awesome. This time flew by. I knew it would. Ken Foster, who's the VP of IT Governance at Fleet Corps, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. And if anyone out there um, a lot of people listen to this show after it airs. Uh, we're going to be out at RSA, and I think it's like April 26th, and Ken's going to be there, and we're going to do a big bourbon tasting, so more information to come on that. Um, thank you so much, Ken. You're such a role model for the industry. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and we will catch you all next week. Stay safe, stay secure, and until next week, have a great rest of your day. Thank you for tuning into End Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? 
FutureCon events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureConHQ. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.